As Aaron mentioned just moments ago, we finally come to the end of the book of Zechariah, which has been a hope-filled book, not only for the Israelites, but hopefully for you as well. Through this book, we've encountered a series of highs and lows, much like a roller coaster. At some points, we were at the the mountaintop where God is speaking of the restoration of his people in, in, in glorious language. But at other times, we've fallen right off a cliff at the very bottom where we see just absolute heartbreak time and time again as his people fail to follow the living God. Well, as we come to the final chapter of Zechariah here this morning, we end on a very happy high note. For it's here that we finally see all that we've been hoping for and longing for in this book. And that is the return of God to his people for good. And this is the perfect ending for the book of Zechariah because even as we go way back to the very beginning, the book opened up with this promise. Return to me and I will return to you. And so as we come to Zechariah 14 here this morning, this is exactly what we see. We see all that we've hoped for as God returns to his people to dwell with them forevermore. No longer will God be away from his people, but he will be here eternally with them, securing them forevermore. And so this is the hope that we are to have as God's people, the hope of final, total deliverance at his return in Jesus Christ. So as we come to Zechariah 14 here this morning, we see the total salvation of us in Jesus Christ. And so what does this include? We find that this total salvation includes total rescue, restoration, and redemption. And so while these pictures are not unfamiliar to us as we've walked through this book, we will see them in totality here in chapter 14 as Christ returns to us. So as these pictures are unveiled for us here this morning, my call to you is to put your hope in Jesus' return because that is what this is primarily about here this morning. So we began then with the total rescue that we will experience at Jesus' hand in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 15. As we come to verse 1 here, we find a really a continuation of what we left off with last week. In chapter 13, we ended on a sour note. God's people were again being persecuted. Two-thirds would be wiped out and one-third would be put through the fire to be refined. And so there's this continuation of, of absolute persecution. And even as we read, it continues on in the first couple of verses here. So you look at these, these verses and you, you try to imagine what you're seeing God's people are just being plundered for all their worth. It's happening right on front of them as their positions are just stripped away from them. And they stand there completely helpless as everything they, they have is just taken away. The nations attack Jerusalem and the city is captured, looted, and burned to the ground. The women are defiled. The people face exile. And we have a picture here of God's people just being absolutely crushed and obliterated. And so even as the shepherd is struck in the previous scene, so the sheep are continuing to be slaughtered without mercy in awful, gruesome ways. 
and it will continue on this way until Christ returns to his people. This is what we find here in verse 3. It's here that the Lord will then come on that day to fight against those people who persecute his people as he fights on a day of battle. And when God fights on that day of battle, this brings our minds back to all the times in the past when God has gone out to fight his people's battles. And every time God has done this in the past, what has been the result? The tide of battle turns dramatically, right? God's people begin to win as God intervenes for them. And they, they win. They have salvation as God fights their battle and frees them. And so verse 3 here is, is that turning point in the text at the very end of days. So even as we continue reading then, when he returns, when God returns to fight his people's battles, he will stand on the Mount of Olives directly east of Jerusalem. Now it's good for us to again bring our memory back to Jesus. When he ascends into heaven after the resurrection, where is it that he ascends? He ascends to Jesus, the, uh, Jesus ascends to the Father here on the Mount of Olives. And so as verse 4 tells us, one day, Jesus will return to this exact location to free his people. And when he does, there is then this image of a massive earthquake just taking place. In other words, it's cataclysmic, and it's obvious when Jesus will return. And the result of this earthquake is that it will split the mountain straight open from east to west so that there's this massive chasm straight down the middle. And much like the Red Sea was parted in the past where God brought deliverance to his people through the Red Sea. So again, in a dramatic fashion, the mountain is being split open so that his people can escape to himself, to safety. The people would flee to their God, to Jesus, who has returned to save them. So what we have pictured here again is that in Christ's return, no oceans, no mountains, absolutely nothing will prevent God from rescuing his people here at his return. And so when he returns, he will come with all the holy ones with him as our text reveals. And, and who are these holy ones? I think they are the people of God, but I think they are also the holy angels that Jesus references in his life and ministry. In Mark 8:38, he says that he will come with these angels and again, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8, that after God's people have suffered horrific things, Jesus will return. And he will return with his holy angels to give deliverance and justice to his people. And so where there's this temporary deliverance in the past, now it's coming to fruition forever at Christ's return. And so just as there seems to be no hope for the good guys and in the movies like Lord of the Rings when they're facing a dire circumstance and they're just surrounded by, by all these enemies and everything just seems absolutely lost and hopeless, so it's at this exact moment for God's people when Jesus will return. He will return with an army of holy angels to rescue his people forevermore. And so much like Aragorn 
in, in the return of the king, when he returns with a, a ghost army to wipe out the enemy, or when Gandalf returns with an army to save the people at Helm's Deep, so Jesus one day will return to rescue his people forevermore from their enemies, from the pains, the persecutions, and the trials of this life. So for us here this morning, we, in seeing this glorious picture, can have immense hope no matter what we're going through. No matter how bad our circumstances around us look, no matter how dire or hopeless we feel in the moment, no matter how bleak our situation, we know that in the end, Jesus will come to our rescue. He will save us on that final day. And the enemies of God that have hated us, killed us, tortured us, plundered us, will be done away for good. And so as the people of God who are trusting in Christ Jesus here this morning, this is glorious news. This is hope-filled. But for those of us who do not know Jesus as their king, this is terrifying. This is frightening. For when Jesus returns, we see judgment enacted upon the enemies of God, as the, uh, upon those who don't know him as their king. And so verses 12 through 15 then come almost something out of like a horror film. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Because as the enemies of God continue to rebel against Jesus as king, they're going to be struck with a plague, something like a plague that fell upon Egypt. And our, as our text reads, their flesh will rot while they stand. Their eyes will rot in their eye sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And basically, just to put it in our terms today, he's turning them into zombies, to the dead walking. They're merely dead men walking without any hope at all as they are struck with the judgment of God. And on top of this, they will turn against one another and they will destroy each other completely. And so again, for us, this is wonderful news. God will rescue his people from their enemies. God's people will be triumphant. They will plunder their enemies just as the Israelites plundered Egypt long ago. And this will happen when Jesus returns to us. However, for those who do not know, this is a severe warning to them. Because Jesus will judge with perfect justice. And he will make sure that no evil in this life goes unpunished. So if this is you here this morning, if you do not know Jesus as your king, he is coming one day and he calls for all people to submit to him, to turn from your own way of living and to trust in his goodness and his righteousness. For that is the only source of our salvation is Christ and what he's done for us. So again, in these opening verses, this is a word of encouraging hope and also of warning. Rescue for us and judgment upon every evil that we have ever experienced and are restless about in this life. But then we also find the hope then, not of only total rescue, but of total restoration at Christ's return. And this is what we see in verses 6 through 11. In the beginning... We recognize that Adam and Eve tainted everything in this world when they rebelled against God as creator and king over all. 
and by rebelling against God, they brought evil into this world. And in this God's creation, which was perfectly good in every way, was severely disfigured and marred. And much like a person who would just take, you know, just a bunch of mud and just splatter it on pristine pieces of art that are millions of dollars, so we did this in the beginning to God's marvelous creation. Everything would be tainted by evil. And so things would begin to die and decay. And we as people would experience immense pains and heartaches that we were never originally meant to experience. But despite the evils we committed against God in the beginning, he wouldn't just give up on us, would he? No, instead, he would set out to restore all that we broke all that we tainted, all the evil we were responsible for bringing into this world, God would restore to its original purpose and creation. And he would restore his people to be all that they were meant to be. And so it is this restoration work that we are seeing come to a completion, come to total completion here in these verses. God is restoring all that we messed up in the beginning in these verses. And this restoration work here is first seen in a restored light for God's people in verse 6. When God returns, we find that there will be no more light coming from the sun or the moon. That's, that's the gist of what this verse is trying to capture. Instead, the moon and the sunlight will kind of freeze up, as it were, and utter darkness will cover and fill the earth, just as it was in the beginning. But on this unique day, without day or night, there would be light in the evening. That's what we read here. Now, now pause with me here for just a moment. How, how does that work? If there's no sunlight and, and there's no moonlight, how is there light in the evening? Where's the source of light coming from? I think that's what we're supposed to be asking ourselves, right? And while we don't have a direct answer here in Zechariah, the Apostle John in Revelation 21, 22, in the New Jerusalem, gives us the answer. And as we read this, he says, I did not see a temple in the New Jerusalem because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God it illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. And in case we didn't get it the first time, he repeats it just a chapter later, 22.5. Night will be no more, and people will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And so as we piece together what, what Zechariah is saying here, we find the fuller revelation given to us by John. For at Christ's return, he will be our perfect source of light, for he is the light of the world. And so Jesus, by his light, will show us the way, the truth, and the life. And as the light of the world all things will be seen as they truly are. We will see by this light the perfect beauty 
and splendor of God as he opens up our eyes to behold his glory and to be captured by as we should be. So this is the first restoring work of God that we see here. But then the second we see is restored health and life to everything that we ruin by bringing death and destruction to. This is pictured for us in verse 8. And now we have living waters flowing out of Jerusalem from the west to the east, to the east, to the west, and it flows year-round even in the wintertime. And what we are to picture here is, is health and life being brought back to the earth with this living water at Christ's return. And as we look at this prophecy here, it's, it's very likely that Zechariah is drawing on the imagery of Ezekiel's prophecy. That one day, this living water would flow out from the temple in Jerusalem to all the nations. And it would be this living water coming from God's holy temple that health and, and life would be restored to all people and things. And so that as people touch this living water, as things touch this living water, that which was once foul would be made clean and pure. And the things that were once dying would again find life and health. And when we put this again together with John's revelation, 22, 1 and 2, we see the fuller picture once more. And then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And so as we put again these, these pictures together, it points us to Jesus again. For Jesus is the new temple, the temple of God for us. He is the means by which we now commune with God the Father. And even as we sung today, the curtain is being torn in two. That is no longer the temple Jesus is. He is the source to God the Father. And from this temple, from Jesus himself, flows this river of living water to all things in the earth. So that as things and people touch this river of life, they are restored. They bear fruit. There's a fullness of life. There is eternal life. And isn't this exactly what we see in Jesus, Jesus Christ's own ministry here on earth? As he touches the sick, as he heals the man's hand, as he makes the dead alive again, as people encounter Jesus, the one who gives this living water, there is life. And so even in his life and ministry, he offers this to us, to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 14. And it's here where he says to her, the water I give, he will never thirst again. And in fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And so we see that at Jesus' return, he will again bring this fullness of life, this living water to all things and to all people. He will restore the life and health that we initially lost in the beginning. And so then all that which is broken, dead, or dying and hurting will be restored to life by Jesus himself. And this happens as we look to him as we look to Christ, as we turn from our own way of living, 
and we look to Jesus and his word, we find a living water that truly satisfies the deepest desires of our souls. We find a a living water which quenches the thirst of our deepest longings. A living water that brings life to dead souls and living water that wells up into eternal life when we will see him face to face. So even this morning, as we see this picture of living water being branched out across the earth, so this is happening today, and so it will be fully complete at Christ's return. And in response to seeing that true life comes from Jesus, true health, true restoration, we are called then to forsake all other putrid waters of this world, which only lead to death and despair. We are called to pursue this living water found in Jesus and his word alone. And so even as the Israelites of old committed the great evil of forsaking this fountain of living waters by hewing out from themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, we as the church are called to instead drink deeply and richly of this living water that Jesus Christ offers us here today to drink deeply of this water and find life and joy in our relationship to Christ. So perhaps you're here this morning and you've been trying to find life and joy outside of Jesus even this past week. Whether it's in things like sexual immorality, lust, laziness, or selfishness, or you've been seeking, trying to find life in things like your job or the approval and respect of people, or whether it's been in things like trying to be a good parent or having the perfect spouse or being the perfect spouse or having the perfect children, whatever it is that you are seeking ultimate joy and fulfillment in, we are reminded here in this picture that the only thing that can truly satisfy our souls in the end Our only hope in life and death is our relationship to Jesus. It's the only thing that can meet our needs. So as we strive to satisfy our souls then with these living waters that bring life and health, reversing the curse set forth in the garden, all of us then should be striving to encourage one another to grow in our relationship to Jesus and his word. And that's why we make our whole service about Christ. Because in Christ, there is fullness of joy. There is true peace. And we strive toward this until one day that will come in totality when we see him face to face. So then there is restored life. There is restored life and health. And then we see a restored kingship then overall in verse 9. Upon Christ's return, we see that he will be king over all the earth. And he will be king over the entire earth in the sense that all are completely subject to him in totality as he is physically present with us. And in this, it will be Jesus, and it will be his name alone which will be worshiped above all else. And in connection to what we talked about last week, where God is removing the idols from the land so that their names will no longer be remembered, Here in our text, we were reminded that it will be God's name alone that will be remembered forever and ever. 
His name alone will be on the hearts and minds of his people. He alone will control the affections and hearts of his people, and no longer will it be these idols of earth. So even as you read this text about God's name and his name alone being remembered forever and ever, we can't help but think of what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For as Paul tells us, for this reason God has highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so as we await this day when Jesus will return, and where the idols that we struggle with will be forgotten, we look to Christ and we await that day when he will be exalted above all. Because not only, not only will he bring all of our enemies into subjection, but he will also secure everlasting peace, life, and health for his people. As the text continues on here, we see this securing work of Jesus. As the lands around Jerusalem are turned into a plain, And the city of Jerusalem then is lifted up even higher than it already is. And what what God is doing here is promising to his people safety and security forevermore with Jesus as their king in the new Jerusalem. And so even as we see this picture unfold for us, the church here this morning, it brings our minds directly to Revelation 21 and the security God's people will encounter in the new Jerusalem. As the text reads for us, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So in this new Jerusalem, of which we will be a part of as God's bride, Jesus' bride, the church, God himself will secure us forevermore in his arms as he lifts us up away from all threats. And so even as he secures us, he will secure us from all the pains that we've ever encountered in this life as he wipes away the tears from our eyes. And death will be no more, nor the heartaches we receive in being separated from our loved ones, but we will instead be secured. We'll be united with Jesus and all our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have lost. And we will find our everlasting rest our everlasting joy and peace in the arms of Christ, our Savior. And so this is what is pictured for us here in these verses as Christ returns to us. He will deliver total rescue, and he will totally restore all things to be the way they should. And finally, we find the hope of total redemption then at the end. The hope of this redemption then extends first to all people. And this quickly becomes evident 
even as the enemies of God who are judged by him, just verses ago, now have the opportunity to commit themselves to King Jesus. And so even as we saw back in chapter 9 where Philistines would be saved and incorporated into the people of God and be made like a tribe of Judah, so we see, again, the same thing here. Despite the evils they committed against God's people, the horrific acts that they've done, God desires to save those who are willing to turn from their evil ways of living and swear allegiance to King Jesus. And so we see these survivors then, who were once rebellious nations, being given the opportunity to turn to God and worship him at the festival of shelters here in verse 16. All we really need to know about the festival of shelters here is that it was a time of celebration, a time of thanksgiving for the provision of God to his people. It was a celebration of God as the provider of the harvest. And the Israelites would, would camp in tents to remember the exodus in which they were delivered from, uh, from Egypt and how God would tabernacle among his people and dwell among them to bring them safety and protection. And so these enemies of God, don't miss this, the enemies of God are given opportunity to celebrate this with God's people. They're invited to come and worship the king who, yes, even died and was raised for them. And in this great mercy, we see again God's heart for even his enemies, for those who persecute his people. He still desires that they not perish, but that they repent and turn to him and find their life. But even as the, the text continues here, if they spurn the mercy and grace of God, if they don't accept his mercy and grace that he freely offers them, if they disconnect from the God of life, they will only reap death and destruction instead. And so there is only redemption or there is judgment. Redemption in totality for all those who turn to the living God and find life, or there is judgment in the end for those who fail to turn from the rebellious ways back to Jesus. And so again, the calling for all people here this morning is to embrace, embrace the mercy and grace of God that he desires to show you in Jesus. For it's found nowhere else. It's not found in the idols of this world. It's not found in living for yourself selfishly, but it's found in Jesus, the source of living water. And so this is our calling as the church, and it is also our calling to proclaim this message to all people all over the earth. And so in the end then, we find that all people will either be redeemed or they will be judged as they turn away from the mercy and grace of God again. This brings us then to the redemption of all things. And again, where we saw that we ruined God's creation in the world by bringing evil into it, here we see a picture of even the reversal of that itself. For in the end, when God returns to his people, so he will cleanse and purify all things that were tainted by sin. This is seen even as the horses, which were technically unclean under Levitical law, are now inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. And as every vessel and pot are also made holy to the Lord as well. 
And finally, even as we see the removal of the Canaanite from the temple as they were merchants and traders on that day. Uh, some of your translations, depending on what you're using here, ESV, NLT, the message. Um, what's being communicated here is that there would no longer need any more sacrifices in the temple. And the Canaanites were traders. They were merchants. They would sell the sacrifices needed in the temple. But what's being communicated here is that those merchants would be eliminated. There is no more need for sacrifice anymore. For Jesus himself would be offered up as an offering for sins once and for all. And so that at the end of the days, all people, all things would be redeemed to God again. All will be rescued, restored, and redeemed in totality back to King Jesus. And so in seeing this picture here again, we, we think of Revelation 22.4, which tells us the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And so in the end, we find a picture of God, of Jesus, redeeming all people and all things to the glory and praise of his name forevermore. They will be fully set apart for God and God for them. And so the people will cry out, you are my God. And he will respond, you are my people. And so the question is for us here this morning, are we longing for the return of King Jesus when this will all come to fruition in totality? Are we longing for the day when Jesus will rescue us, when he will restore all that we've ever lost here on this earth, and where he will redeem us from sin fully and completely? My prayer is that, that all of us would grow in expectation of his return and would live in this light until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would again deepen our hope for King Jesus and his return. Help us, Lord, not to, to long for the putrid waters of this world, but to instead long for the living water that Jesus offers us in himself. Help us to long for Jesus, for in him we find our life, our hope, our joy and our peace. For in the arms of Jesus, we are safe and secure. We have that which we desire most. We have Jesus who means more to us than anything. So help us, Jesus, to long for you as we should, to live for you as your citizens here on earth. Help us to proclaim the message of the gospel clearly for others so that they would not fall under judgment, but under your mercy and grace instead in your finished work. Help us to this end, we pray. Amen.